Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. So are you sick of me yet? Okay, good, because I'm about to talk for a long time. Temper Temper is a brand new series we're starting today. It's going to be a fun, lighthearted series. Everybody ready for that? Good. Now, God, God placed this idea deep down in my soul a few months ago um, when I realized for the first time that I might be dealing with some anger issues. <laughs> I felt like I had never in my life been an angry person. Like, I, I feel like I've dealt with this really well. I'm not even sure where it's coming from. And um, God had me dealing with that a little bit, looking under the hood of what might be actually going on there. It's pretty easy to see where we're going with this, right? Temper, temper is a pretty clear-cut message. The phrase temper, temper is actually usually said when we think someone is being unreasonably angry, right? Temper, temper. And we usually have a bit of an attitude when someone says that to us, right? We don't like the insinuation that we are unreasonably angry because we generally feel very entitled to our anger, right? right? Very justified in our anger. I, ha- I have a right to be angry. When someone says I'm unreasonably angry, that just takes me off even more. Right. Doesn't help the situation. We, we, we genuinely believe we don't have a temper problem. We have a, a people problem. Right? It's, it's what's been done to me. You don't understand what they did. I'm not unreasonably angry. I'm justifiably angry. You can't possibly understand. We feel very justified in our anger. And I bet if I asked you to raise your hands today, I won't. But I bet if I did, if I asked how many of you believe that you have an anger problem currently, or maybe that you have in the past, most of us would raise our hands. But I bet if you were answering honestly, Almost all of you would, right? If we honestly looked at ourselves, so some of us believe that we have it under control, right? It's not an anger problem unless we're, we're punching walls, screaming at people all the time, right? If, if we're not doing those things, we think that we have it under control and it's not an anger problem. It's just a little bit of anger. Everybody walks around with that, right? You don't know what's been done to me in my past, but my husband has gone through this kidney failure thing for the past two years. And from that, I've learned that some of us are walking around with kidney failure now. We just don't even know it. Right? Like, the strength of your kidneys is actually that they can function down to like, and you don't even know it. You don't have many outward symptoms until they're at like 10%. Right? It's not 90% you start to feel symptoms. It's 10% functionality. Your kidneys are still going. You have no idea that you're in trouble. By the time you do know, it's way too late to correct it. It's kind of like anger. We all are walking around, probably all of us are walking around with an anger problem, but we don't know that we're dying until it's way too late. We think we have it under control, right? We might grind our teeth at night, but at least it's not affecting my relationships. We might bottle it up and vent sometimes, but at least I vent to the right people, 
Right? I might scream in my car when that lady doesn't use her blinker three times in a row, but I didn't get out and bash her window in. <laughs> right? We temper our own problem with at least I'm not. I might punch walls, but at least I'm not punching people. Genuinely heard that one before. We don't understand that at what point it becomes a real problem. Our tempers aren't always overt and out of control, but that doesn't mean it's not hurting you. Do you know, this title actually has two meanings to me now, too. Temper has two meanings. The word, as it means something specific as a noun, and it means something else completely as a verb. Do you know this? Think about it for a second. When we say temper, temper, we're talking about uh, an out-of-control anger, right? As a noun, it is an out-of-control anger. But to temper, as a verb, means to control, to restrain. Both are a problem. Our unreasonable anger, our out-of-control anger is a problem, but the other side is a problem too. The problem that we think we can just control it away. We can just manage our emotions so they don't affect my relationships. The problem with it is that we will never get there that way. As long as we're judging our emotions, as long as we're trying to box them in and put them on the shelf, we're never going to completely change them or get rid of them. The root of the emotion is what I'm digging at in this series. The root of the emotion, not the emotion itself. So I have this concern about current church culture and Christianity that we focus way too much on our behavior and not nearly enough on the We want to teach our kids back in kids' ministry to just be good and don't lie and don't steal. If, if you just can control your behavior and be a good little boy or girl, Jesus will love you. We might not say that, but sometimes that's the way it comes out of our mouths is we genuinely believe it. I would rather teach kids to have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ to allow him to change them from the inside out because the behavior will fix itself if you have that. It just, it will, but it doesn't work the other way around. I want Christians to understand who they are in Christ Jesus, to be firmly planted in him, and the behavior will not be a problem. Anger is just another one of those topical things those behavior things that covers a multitude of other things and enables a multitude of other things. We talked last week about fear and denial, right? How deception can be one of those topical things that covers deeper issues. Anger does this too. Unforgiveness, bitterness, insecurity, Insecurity is one of those things that doesn't sound like it should be on that list, but anger covers it all the time. And insecurity sounds like just a fear thing. I don't know who this is for this weekend, but I feel like it's a little off topic, but it's for somebody. Insecurity actually isn't a fear problem. It's a selfishness problem. This changed my life. When I realized this, I was a person of deep insecurities growing up. And I thought it was just because I was fearful. I couldn't push myself out. And if I just fixed the fear problem, I'd be all right. But it, the fear's still there, guys. 
I can overcome that. It was the selfishness problem I had to fix. I thought if I could just control how everybody sees me, then I could control how everyone sees me. doesn't work that way. It was more of a, I have to care enough deeply about other people. They're not actually thinking about me nearly as much as I think they are. They're thinking about themselves, right? Insecurity is not a fear problem. It's a selfishness problem, and anger covers it all the time, right? I can't believe they disrespected me like that. That's insecurity. We think it's their problem, but it's actually ours. We don't respect ourselves enough, and so we take everybody else's opinion over ours. We think their opinion has to have control over me. Insecurity. Anger covers jealousy. Anger covers pride. Anger covers lust. Anger covers greed. It covers so many other things, but anger is what presents topically. So many people try to fix their anger issue, but it's really something deeper. And I'd like to demonstrate this today by exploring the book of Jonah. Jonah, you might think Jonah might be a really odd place to go for this because we tend to think of it as just the Jonah and the whale kids story, right? And sometimes in kids ministry, we, we just look at the whale situation. He repented, God saved his life, but there's so much more to this very short Old Testament book than just the whale. In fact, Jonah is a very unique book in the Old Testament because although it's one of the books of the prophets, it's not like the others in that it's a book about a prophet's words and how they affect Israel. It's actually a book about the prophet. There's not many other books, if any other books like this in the Old Testament. This is a book about Jonah, not about his words. And and Jonah The character, the person, Jonah, appears only one other time throughout the Old Testament. And it's during the reign of Jeroboam II, one of Israel's worst kings. This is an evil guy, a bad guy. And here we see Jonah prophesying in his favor. He's prophesying that Jeroboam's going to win a huge battle. So already we're like, what is going on here? This man of God is prophesying in favor of an evil king. And we see a prophet Amos actually have to undo his prophecy. He has to come behind him and and fix it. No, you're not going to win everything. You're going to lose everything because you won't repent. And so Jeroboam, he does lose right off the bat before the book of Jonah even starts. We sort of mistrust him, right? He's prophesied badly before, and yet he's still called a prophet of God. What is going on? It's fascinating to me, by the way, that Jonah is still used by God under these circumstances. Gives me a little hope for me, right? Maybe God can use me, too, if he's willing to use a guy like this. So if you don't know the story, we're actually going to read most of the book today. Uh, Jonah is only four very short chapters, and I really want to make sure you know the the Bible version, not the storybook version. Okay, Jonah 1, verse 1. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. Right off the bat, knowing a little bit about Jonah, I know the end of the story, so I can fill in some details for you. Jonah hates the Assyrians. All of Israel hates the Assyrians, and Nineveh is capital of Assyria. 
It's, it's where the, the king lives, the most murderous king ever. I mean, think Nazis or Al-Qaeda when you think of Assyria. They're terrible people. They're just the worst kind of murderous, awful people. In fact, I was doing a little bit of research on these people, and it turns out when they would come into town, like when they were marching against the city, a city would literally commit mass suicide because they knew they were coming. They didn't want to be submit submitted to the evil of the Assyrian people. They were that bad. Okay, so terrible people. You would think Jonah would jump at this opportunity. Right? Great, let's go announce judgment. They're wicked. God sees it and he's going to correct it. Let's do this, but no. Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Everybody say Tarshish. If I have to say it, you have to say it. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and cried out to his own God. These were not godly men. Okay, I want you to notice throughout this just how many times in the book of Jonah things seem to be opposite of what they should. Right? Here we have already in the story, we have a prophet of God, a man of God, not listening to his own God, running in the opposite direction. Right? And now we have sailors who probably immoral people, right? Not godly people. But they immediately... Well, let's just keep reading. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. This doesn't quite make sense to our like very one God culture. But back then, you believed in all the gods, right? You collected gods almost. You wanted everybody to... to pray to their God just in case one of them was real. So then the sailors said to each other, come, let's cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. Because the sea is their problem, right? He's claiming to worship the God who made the sea, and the sea is their problem. They're terrified. They asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Still trying to get the easy way out, Jonah. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that this is my fault and this great that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, again being good guys, trying to save this guy's life and their own. They row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. 
immediately repenting upon seeing the goodness of the Lord. So many opposites in this book. So many contradictions, right? So many prejudice, um, misconceptions we have about the people operating in this story. Jonah, the man of God, ran in the opposite direction. None of this part of the story should have happened, right? If Jonah hadn't been angry, and we see why a little later, if he hadn't been angry, he would not have run in the opposite direction. I have known this story since probably before I could talk, Right? Growing up in kids' ministry, you don't get out of kids' ministry without knowing this story. I've always known Jonah and the whale. I've preached this story before. And for some reason, looking at it through the lens of temper, temper, one phrase kept jumping out at me. The opposite direction. The opposite direction. Jonah literally went the opposite direction from what God asked him to do. This is what anger makes you do makes you run in the opposite direction from everything you should be running towards. Jonah's anger causes him to go the opposite direction, literally from where God wanted him. He shouldn't have had to go through any of this. If he had been within the will of God, he wouldn't have had to get swallowed by a fish for three days. None of this would have happened. It's his anger that puts him there. Israel was supposed to be this beacon to the world. Supposed to be a light on the hill. It was supposed to be this country, this people group that drew the world to God. They were going to be blessed and happy and full of love that overflowed onto the people around them. They were supposed to draw people toward God, but they had gotten stuck. Instead of being ambassadors of God, prideful and angry and bitter, and they wanted their enemies to be wiped out. Jonah, the man of God, was no different. He had let his own culture infect his walk with God. Everybody around him was angry, so he is too. And prophets are called to lead the people towards God and said he was just like all the others, angry and bitter, and prideful. But before you judge Jonah too harshly, think introspectively for a moment. If God showed love to the people you hate, how would that make you feel? I don't hate anyone, Pastor Candace. I'm a good Christian, right? Okay, I hear you. But if God showed love to the person that hurt you the most, how would that make you feel? If God gave mercy, if he did not punish that parent who abused you, the spouse who rejected you, the mother who neglected you, the addict who betrayed you, the friend who used you, the political party you hate, if God gave them mercy, if he showed them love, if he did not bring the judgment that you think they deserve, how would that make you feel? See, Jonah didn't run because he was lazy. In fact, it was a lot more work to not do what God asked him to do, right? He didn't run because uh, he didn't want 
the judgment to be proclaimed over Nineveh. That's the only thing he wanted. In fact, he ran because he knew that God was compassionate and he would find a way to forgive those horrible Ninevites. He would find a way to forgive and love them. And he was disgusted and wanted nothing to do with it. He would rather have died than live with the God that forgives his enemies. And honestly, a lot of us are here too. We can trust God with vengeance sometimes. And if we get ourselves to the place where we can trust God with vengeance, then we think we're owed vengeance from God. Right? A lot of us, we, we want to take on the retribution. We want to pay back our enemies, but we know that we shouldn't. And to be good Christians, we should let that to God. And so we get ourselves to this place where we can separate us from that a little bit. But we say, God, you better take care of this or I will. We only partially let go of it. Right? Only if you're going to take care of it, God, I, I can let it go. Only if. If you're going to bring rain fire upon them and smite them, oh mighty smiter, then I'll be all right. As long as that happens. But if it doesn't, Jonah's prayer, verse 17, chapter 1. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. This is supposed to be his resurrection story. But unfortunately, he does pray. On the third day, he prays. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. He's very poetic in the belly of a fish. Surprisingly, <clears throat> I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Would you say that was a completely repentant prayer? he doesn't mention his anger he doesn't mention that God's going to save them and he's okay with that now right we see later he's still a little angry about that part but he does say he's going to do what God's asked him to do and so the Lord commands the fish and it vomits Jonah onto dry land chapter 3 then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. It doesn't seem like a large city by our standards, but back then it was. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. Anybody find that odd so far? Very short sermon. In Hebrew, it's literally five words. 
he put the bare minimum amount of work into the sermon. Like, no preparation whatsoever. He didn't even travel the whole city and gather a, a crowd before he said it. He went one day into a, a three-day-long city, said five words, and peaced out. Bare minimum amount of work. <clears throat> and yet, verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. Easy peasy. I don't feel like he deserves the success that this sermon got for him. But a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Again, opposite. This king, right? Think king of the Nazis, right? Think just the most murderous guy, the worst guy, repents with five words. Turns immediately and makes everybody else and the cows repent too. Like everything in this story is upside down. And when they saw, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. He didn't bring on the destruction he had threatened from a five-word sermon from a prophet who barely obeyed. Proving that it's not my words up here that are going to change you. It's God. (laughs) I can get up and say a five-word sermon and 120,000 people can come to know Jesus. Amazing. Why can't I get that gift, God? That's success in a preacher's book. And yet, Jonah doesn't find success here. Chapter 4, verse 1. This change of plans, remember the the plan was to destroy Nineveh. The change of plans is what greatly upset Jonah. He became very angry. He complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God. Sounds like a good thing. Yeah? Not coming out of Jonah's mouth. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn your back from destroying people. Again, all good things, but he's spitting them at God. You're eager to turn your back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. It's pride. Jonah's anger, it's causing him to run away from God in the opposite direction from his purpose, is covering pride. He cares way more about his own words and how they're perceived back in his culture than he does about souls. I hope you can see the correlation. The American church is pretty similar care way more about what the people sitting here at the pews beside us think than the people outside these walls that we need to save 
that are dying in their violence and anger. But God, in his infinite wisdom, doesn't smite Jonah instead. (laughs) He doesn't come back at Jonah with, with more anger. He comes at Jonah with a question. Now, I feel like certainly if anyone has the right to be angry in this entire story, it's God. Right? Like, to me, I feel like Jonah should be the one destroyed at this point. Wipe him out. Turn him into a pillar of salt. God, like, these are things I know you're capable of. Why aren't you doing it to Jonah? He deserves it, doesn't he? You're showing mercy, and he thinks no mercy should be shown. So, but no. Instead, verse 4, he asks Jonah a patient and kind question. Is it right for you to be angry about this? Is it right for you to be angry about this? He asks Jonah an introspective question. It has nothing to do with the Ninevites' worthiness. Are they worthy of being destroyed? It has nothing to do with that. It's talking about Jonah. It's trying to get Jonah to look at Jonah. And if he had taken a second to see through his emotions, to look past or underneath his emotions, he would have been able to see that. When God asks a question, does he need to know the answer? When God asks a question, is it because he genuinely wants to know? Is it possible for God to want to know something he does not already know? No. So when he asks a question, it's not for his benefit, it's for yours. He wants you to look at you. To look under the anger. See, emotions aren't inherently bad. Anger isn't inherently bad. But that's what we're trying to treat. We're angry about things, and we think that we just need to control that anger, to to push it down, to manage it. But the anger isn't what's necessarily bad. What's under the anger? Emotions should just be used as gauges, right? As... um, messengers, you need to pay attention to this, right? Ask yourself what's under this. Why are you feeling the way that you're feeling? They're meant to be messengers and gauges. And we, we need to start asking ourselves non-judgmental feeling questions. I know this all sounds very therapeutic and some of you are like, ah, oh, it's scary, but it's not scary. It's really, really good for you. <laughs> We tend to judge our emotions, right? We feel this anger, and we're like, oh, I shouldn't be feeling that. And so we push it aside, push it aside. Instead of saying, why am I feeling this? What's underneath of this feeling? There's something that's causing this that maybe I need to change. What's under the anger? This is what God was trying to make him see. This is why God didn't give him all of the answers. He can't. He wouldn't. He's trying to make you come to it on your own. This is two years, not two years ago, not this past Christmas, but the one before we had a series called Wonder, right? And it was all about the wonder that was spread throughout the the, um, Jerusalem area when Jesus was born. The wonder that spread. It caused people to ask questions. God didn't just give us all of the answers. He causes us to ask questions. We're meant to sit and wonder, 
to come to those answers on our own. God doesn't force feed them to us. He allows us to come to them on our own. God was trying to make him see what's beneath your anger. He asked him a question. He was showing mercy to Jonah while Jonah was busy not showing mercy to others. I want God to yell. I want God to say mean things. I want him to rain down fire from heaven on Jonah, but we don't serve a God who uses and abuses us like that. Jonah's job was technically done now, right? People were repenting. He had said his five words, done. But God doesn't use and abuse us like that. He's not just the God of nations, but the God of individuals. He wanted Jonah's salvation, not just Nineveh's. Even though I feel like he would have been well within his rights to just take him out, he showed him mercy. He lovingly tried to show Jonah himself. And here is where we see a little bit about God's anger. You know, I feel like I've been given this word for this year for myself personally, and it's fierce. And every time I look up fierce in the Bible, all I see is God's fierce anger. (laughs) I don't think that's how it applies to me, but it keeps bringing me back to wondering about his anger. When does God get angry? Why is it okay for him to be angry and not me? There's a lot of verses. Look in the sermon notes. I have like 15 verses about our anger and what it does to us, right? In this case, we learn a little bit about God's anger, but it's really the lack of it. Instead of God's judgment, we get a call to look deeper. It's, it's, a, it's a call to repentance. God doesn't always smack us over the head, the head with repentance. He just asks us to look deeper. And we deserve God's righteous anger, right? We deserve him to be angry at us. With every selfish decision we make, we're showing God how we feel about his blessings. And I don't know about you, but I have a lot of selfish thoughts happening up here, right? Every day I do something else. I think something else to deserve God's righteous anger. But God withholds his anger way more than he shows it, way more. Then he shows it. He gives so many chances, so many questions, so many calls back to repentance. It has to be really far gone to get him to show his anger. In uh, Bold and Brave, my Wednesday night women's group this week, we looked at the story of Saul and David and how it seems that God sends a tormenting spirit on Saul. He does. It doesn't seem like it. He does. He sends a tormenting spirit to Saul. And our question was, why would a good God send what seems like a bad thing? It's not the only time throughout the word. We're about to read one. It seems like he sends a bad thing. But what about Pharaoh? Right? Remember the the story of the Egyptians. Pharaoh says, no, I will not let your people go nine times. No, 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 no. And on the 10th time, the word says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Seems to do a bad thing. Why? Although God doesn't always show his anger, there does come a point where he can no longer tolerate evil. 
or you can no longer tolerate selfishness. And for leaders, you better watch out because it comes quicker than for everybody else. If you have other people behind you, your your family, your workplace, whatever it is, you better watch out because you don't get as many chances because you're leading other people to evil too. Nine times Pharaoh hardened his heart. The tenth time, God stopped it. Saul made half a dozen decisions that were rebellious against God. God stopped it. There does come a point where his anger will step in because we do deserve it. But he's way more merciful than he is angry. By the time he actually gets around to ending evil, you've had so many chances to repent. So many introspective questions like this. God's anger is always justified and it's always righteous. Ours, on the other hand, rarely either of those things. Human anger tends to lead to more sin and more selfishness doesn't work out in the way we think it's going to. God's question here is basically, what gives you the right to be angry? And I've been asking myself this question a lot since learning about this stuff. What gives me the right? But more specifically, who gives me the right to be angry? Nine times out of ten, my answer is me. I give myself the right. (laughs) Am I righteous and justified like God is? Should I be giving myself the right to be angry? Jonah, just by human standards alone, I'm sure he was justified in his anger against the Assyrians. I mean, just knowing the kind of people that they were. They may have murdered and raped his whole family. It's well within the scope of possibility for them. They were capable of that sort of thing. They did it regularly. Maybe that's what happened to Jonah. Maybe he couldn't bring himself to heal and forgive from that. And he just could not see a way that God could either. By human standards, you could make a case that he had a right to be angry. In the eyes of the world, no human would fault you on that. But seeing things through a kingdom perspective, with kingdom eyes, is a different story. The gospel changes everything. Jonah could have been another story, an example, and pattern of the gospel. He he could have laid down his life for people that did not deserve it. He could have been another Messiah figure to them. He even had his death and resurrection three days in a tomb story, right? He could have been that. He could have seen his own second chance, As a second chance for the Assyrians, God was trying to show him an object lesson in the belly of that whale. He was trying to say, you're rebellious too, Jonah. I'm resurrecting you. Now go and proclaim that hope to other people. Jonah hardened his heart. Instead of being able to lay down his life for people who had hurt him, instead of being able to rejoice that another group of people are going to get to experience the second chance that only can come from God, he got angry. He couldn't look deep enough. couldn't allow God in deep enough. And so God gives him a second object lesson. We see Jonah march up a hill in chapter 4. Go sit on a hill and literally wait and watch. He's going to watch the city and see what God does with it. And so God provides this fast-growing tree. 
right? Like picture it like an elephant ear type of plant that just seems to pop up out of nowhere overnight, grew up and it gave him shade. And he was very happy under that plant. Literally the only time in the story we see Jonah happy (laughs) because he's comfortable, because he's taken care of. And from last week, we know that getting comfortable in the kingdom is a dangerous thing. He's comfortable. We're going to pick up the story in Jonah 4, verse 7. But God also arranged for a worm. See this bad thing that comes from God? Sometimes God sends discipline. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. (laughs) God can be snarky. Sometimes, and he knows just the way to push our buttons. (laughs) He arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. So drama. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? He's asking again, object lesson form this time. Right? It's like the scientific experiments, object lessons we do back in kids. God is giving him an object lesson, a scientific experiment to show him his own heart. Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, not willing to look deeper, allowing the anger to speak for him, right? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And the book ends. (laughs) Just like that, the book ends. We don't get to see what happens to Jonah or the city. We don't know if Jonah repents or God takes him out or what, but the book wasn't written for Jonah. The book was written for you. See, we tend to put ourselves in the role of Jonah in this story. Right? We, we tend to think that we've got it all together. We're following God to the best of our ability. Everybody else is just wrong and, and sinful and just they're wrong. <laughs> we get angry. And when God does show mercy, we get angrier. But what if we're not Jonah? What if we're Nineveh? We're trying to get ahead in life by any means necessary. We're we're looking out for number one, and it doesn't matter who crosses us or what we got to do. We're looking out for our children and and our legacy. We have to protect what we have built. We, We can be ruthless and hateful, but not to our own people, just to the others out there who think they're better than us. Those Hebrews, those religious people, they serve a God who hates us and thinks we're unworthy. He must because that's what they believe. That's how they treat us. Right? And so we're going to hurt them before they hurt us. Isn't that what life's all about? It's a dog-eat-dog world. But then God sends a man to tell us destruction is coming if we don't change. And immediately we change. How grateful are you for that man? 
even if he's flawed, even if he didn't hang around to have a party with you afterward because you got saved, even if he's sitting up on a hill with a popcorn hoping you get destroyed, I'd be grateful for that man. We are Nineveh, but we don't have Jonah, we have Jesus. Jesus could have felt the way that Jonah felt. He, he could have cursed us instead of blessed us. He could have stayed in that perfect heaven instead of coming and entering into our broken world. He could have cursed us even as he died. We were the murderous people that put him on the cross. And we'd do it all over again if we had the chance today. But he forgave us anyway. Literally the only person on planet Earth that would be justified in condemning us, and he chose not to. In fact, when he hung on that cross, dying a criminal's death that he did not deserve, he asked God for our forgiveness. He said, we didn't know what we were doing. Jonah climbed a hill to get a good seat and some popcorn. Jesus climbed a hill to crawl up onto a cross and lay down his life for us. Do we really have a right to hang on to that unforgiveness and pain and anger in the face of that kind of love? Do we really think we've been wronged more than God, more than Jesus? How do we have a right in the face of that kind of love? Look, I'm not saying you haven't been hurt. I'm not saying what happened to you doesn't or shouldn't hurt. But I am saying that the kind of love that Jesus gives is so powerful, it can heal even that. It can heal you from the inside out and not only use that thing, but then use it to heal others. He can heal you from all those places that you've built up prickly walls around. Can you trust him to do that? Can you give him access to that part of you? Can you change when he calls you on it, like Nineveh, immediately changing? God will spare you and shower love and mercy on you, even though you don't deserve it. Can you take down those prickly walls of anger and let him in? Anger is dangerous. It's an emotion. It's not wrong in and of itself, but it's dangerous when held on to. It can make us run in the opposite direction. All God's saying, and he's not bashing you over the head with this today. He's just saying, stop and examine it. Is it right for you to be holding on to this anger? Is it right? Look underneath it. Examine it. That kingdom mindset will soften your heart every single time. You don't have to run anymore. Allow God in. He wants to help you fix it. I've told this illustration before, so maybe some of you have heard of it, but there are three kinds of friends, right? There's the front door friend, the friend who might know that you're sick or you've had a baby, they'll deliver food to your front door so they know you well enough to know where you live, but you wouldn't invite them in, right? They don't know you quite that well yet. The front door friends. Then there's the, the dining room friends. 
right? You invite them over for a dinner party, but you use all of the good plates, the nice china. You, you don't let them into the kitchen to see the process. You don't let them clean anything up. Everything is very clean when they come over. This is dining room, friends. They know you a little bit better than front door. They come in, but they're not the third kind of friend. The third kind of friend will show up hours before the dinner party and sit on your countertop while you make dinner, dipping their finger into the bowl, right? The third kind of friend will stay long after everybody else has left and help you clean up the mess. They'll sit in the mess with you and talk for hours. They'll help you clean it up. Kitchen friends, front door friends, dining room friends, and kitchen friends. Jesus wants to be a kitchen friend. He wants to enter into the mess with you. He wants to hang out with you long before everybody else gets there and long after everybody else leaves. And he wants to help you clean it up. We keep him at the front door all the time. He's a friend, but he can't get in any further. He would see the mess, right? And I would be so embarrassed and ashamed if Jesus saw my mess. That's not who he is. It's not who he is. You don't have to keep him at the front door and you don't have to have him over just for dinner parties when everything is cleaned up and nice. Invite him over long before because he'll help you clean it up. He's not judging you. He's not angry with you. He wants to help you. He's asking you to think a little bit deeper, right? To maybe look at the the trash can that's been stinking it up for two days and, and can I help you take it out? right? He's not judging the empty pizza box from dinner three nights ago, still on the counter. He wants to help you clean it up. He loves you so much. It doesn't matter what you've done, how murderous and angry you've been in the past. He wants to help you clean it up. He wants you to repent deeply and truly. Stop allowing excuses in your life. We build up these walls of anger and they're prickly and they're meant to keep everyone out. Sometimes they hurt taking down too. Those prickles come back on you. We we allow them to prick us here and there and we just keep putting band-aids over it. We excuse it away, right? We, We say we're sorry for how we acted, but not what's underlying, what's causing the wall to be there in the first place. We just keep putting topical band-aids over something that actually requires the surgery of the gospel. The gospel can cut in between all of those things. The word is like a sword that gets deep down in you and heals you from the inside out. It's not knocking on the walls. It comes in under the walls and heals them from the inside out. It does surgery on your soul. I can't tell you how many times I've worshipped God around these altars, tears streaming down my face, and I, I suddenly realized God's healing me from something I didn't even know existed. I didn't even know I was still hurting from that thing, and I'm healed. The Holy Spirit just did surgery on my soul. I spent a week, a couple of weeks ago, just dealing with things. God kept asking me all these introspective questions and I had to answer them. And I had some things identified and by near the end of the week, I was like, I got this now. I have my feet under me again. I feel like I've identified some things. And then the next weekend hit and in worship, 
God said, okay, now you've identified them. You have to forgive them. (laughs) You don't get to hang on to this anger, right? Now you understand what you're feeling. Forgive it now and quickly. Don't hang on to this thing any longer. It's hurting you from the inside out. You may not see your anger as a problem right now, but it will hurt you from the inside out until you let go of that thing. It's it's one of those things you don't even know what you don't know yet because you've never experienced the freedom. We've been functioning in dysfunctionality for so long we don't know what healthy looks like anymore. Jesus does. There is hope. He wants to heal you with unconditional love. He wants to give you that so that you can go about your world healing others too. Could be a thousand people on the other side of your freedom that need it too. Allow him to come in under the walls, under the temper, and heal you from the inside out. Father, today we turn our hearts toward you. Make us like the people of Nineveh, quick to change when called out, quick to repent, quick to examine our own motives and insecurities, quick to show you how sorry we are and how much we're going to change going forward. Help us to not be like religious Jonah people, prideful angry, bitter at the world. Help us to let go of our temper, our emotions, and not be so attached to them, so entitled to them. Help us to give them to you and allow you to ask us the tough questions. Help us examine ourselves, our motives. Look introspectively and understand who you are. That unconditional love can fix so much. God, allow us to experience it all over again. Change us from the inside out. Tear down walls today. In Jesus' name. Father, one more time today, I want to thank you for your presence, for your love, for the hope that can only come from you. Thank you for what you're doing in our hearts and minds. Thank you for every response today. God, help us understand this gospel like never before. Understand that we are sinners, but we are saved by grace. That you are so, so, so good to us. Thank you so much. Send us out from here today, God, ready to love our world. Not judge them, just love them. Thank you for giving us this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll see you all next week. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I-N-N. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.
heart I'm tethered to Every step I can learn through My station's up Like a tidal wave Crashing over me Rushing in you're going to do in our hearts and minds. Thank you for having a love so fierce. You love us in spite of all of our imperfections and insecurities and issues. You love us anyway. You love us so much. God, above all today, we celebrate your love. We thank you for your love. Keep our eyes and our ears and our hearts open to receive that love today to learn something new, to leave here changed because of it. 
thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.